Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Chelsea Handler. Chelsea is a comedian and an author, and she has a new Netflix documentary titled Hello Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea. And we recorded this conversation a year ago when she was making this documentary because she interviewed me for it, and I decided to simultaneously record a podcast. I knew she would use five minutes or so at best of our conversation in her doc, and I wanted to kill two birds with one stone and get the full conversation for this podcast. Now, as it turns out, she didn't use any of our interview for her film, which, if you see it, is totally understandable. There was really no way to make five minutes of our conversation fit the larger narrative she wanted to tell. If you watch her film, you'll see that she is very concerned about white privilege, and she certainly ascribes her success in large measure to her whiteness. And you'll hear some of my skepticism come out in this conversation. Anyway, I really enjoyed talking to Chelsea, and though we did not agree about everything, we had fun. So, now without further delay, I bring you Chelsea Handler. So let me get this straight. You're doing a documentary on white privilege, and I'm the white guy? Is that the situation we're in? Well, I'm the white girl. It's really about my privilege starting there and then exploring whether or not, you know, where white privilege exists, talking to people who believe it does, and also speaking with people who believe it doesn't, talking to people of color, talking to white people. So I'm starting with my own white privilege. You're just somebody I happen to listen to often. So, and I, I've heard your take. I haven't heard everything you've ever said, but I've heard a lot of what you said. So you seem very well-versed on the matter and opinionated. Right. Yes. And I need yes. opinions because I need to sharpen my outlook. And I, I also, I like to have my opinion changed. So I'm eager to understand better what you know about it not being as much of a problem, identity politics, just that whole kind of arena of thought. Right. Okay. Good. Well, what could go wrong? I want to ask you about the intellectual dark web. Is that mm-hmm. like, so th- is that something you are a member of, admittedly, or is that like a secret kind of society or is that a public thing? Well, it's public, but it, it was always, at least from my point of view, tongue in cheek. Uh, there was a, a podcast guest who's a friend, Eric Weinstein, who coined it. And he coined it to name, at least in my hearing, he coined it to name a kind of media phenomenon, which was that podcasts in particular had become this forum for just fully unedited conversations where people could really just take risks that they weren't taking on in the mainstream media. And these were garnering huge audiences that the mainstream media seemed to be somewhat unaware of. I mean, so like to take a the most successful example, Joe Rogan's podcast the average episode essentially has the listenership of the finale of, the, of Game of Thrones, right? Every week, multiple times a week. So, What's his podcast called? The Joe Rogan Experience. Okay. You know, and my podcast also has a, has a listenership that would be surprising to someone on cable television. And this is going on sort of in the dark. So hence the, the oh, analogy see. to the dark web. Now, unfortunately, the dark web, as we know, is a place where you buy child pornography and terrorist weapons and other things. That part of the analogy is unfortunate. But he was also naming a group of people who were willing to take risks and be 
quote, politically incorrect. And for the most part, I mean, and this is a very loose group of people who are not formally affiliated and don't agree about anything really except about the necessity for speaking honestly on important topics, however controversial. So it names a collection of people, some of whom I've never met, and I couldn't even tell you who's in it at this point, and some who I disagree with about everything, and then some who I really respect and align you know, 90% with. The irony is it's been categorized mostly as a conservative thing, and there's only one, to my eye, real conservative in the group. You know, it's a center and even left of center group of people for the most part. Who is a, who, can you name the person? Yeah, who's, yeah. Ben Shapiro is a, is right. a young so firebrand you, conservative. How do you characterize your own political leadings? I'm a liberal in terms of what I thought a liberal was. I'm a liberal across the board. You know, I mean, I just, I'm for gay marriage and the legalization of drugs and I'm worried about wealth inequality. I think we should tax the rich more than we do. The only place where I align more with a conservative caricature is with respect to foreign policy narrowly focused on the problem of Muslim extremism. I'm very worried about that. And on the left, it's taboo to be very worried about that, or it's considered synonymous with racism to be worried about that. Well, that's what happened on Bill Maher's show with yeah. you, right? And Ben Affleck, yeah. that's when it blew up, that moment about Islamophobia. Yeah, I mean, the problem, so I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this, but the problem with the concept of Islamophobia is it is a way of silencing criticism of a set of ideas. It's conflating, deliberately conflating a concern about specific ideas, ideas that are extremely right-wing. They're just you know, forcing women to live in bags, right? Not letting them drive, not letting them get an education, throwing homosexuals off rooftops. I mean, these are not liberal values. It's conflating a criticism of that with intolerance toward Muslims as people or Arabs as people or people, you know, brown-skinned people from other countries as people. And that's just insane, but that's the default setting on the left at the moment. It's that kind of confusion. Two so, PC. I mean, there are several assumptions that people want to make, which are wrong, but to not make them immediately puts you on shaky ground, especially on the left. So one assumption is that all religions are exactly the same. They teach the same thing. They teach it equally well. They're all to be respected on every question equally. They all have equal gravitas. Now, we know this doesn't make a lot of sense as you get more and more recent, right? If you know too much about the founders of these religions, like you know, L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology gets classed as a cult, not so much as a religion, and it's free to be criticized. Mormonism is a little bit closer to that, but you go a little further back, you get these, you know, the myths of history conceal all the goofiness of the original founders, and people think, well, there's nothing you can say about the differences between these faiths that isn't, on some level, an expression of your own bigotry. To be more concerned about Islam in its current manifestation than Anglicanism or Mormonism or any other religion can only be motivated by your own xenophobia or racism because, you know, all religions are the same. They're either equally linked to violence or they're equally irrelevant. And that's just not true because you have specific doctrines in each faith that account for very 
specific differences in how people behave. And I've never said that Islam is a unified problem. There are many, many millions of Muslims who have nothing in common with ISIS but for the fact that they consider themselves Muslims. But the real problem is that ISIS has been articulating a view of Islam that is not obviously wrong, right? It's plausible. And that's a massive problem that the Muslim world has to deal with. And the non-Muslim world has to urge the Muslim world to deal with it. And the default, again, on the left mostly is to lie about all this, right? Or to pretend the problem isn't what it is. The default on the right is to jigger concern about this, but you know, even valid concern about this with all of the ambient racism and xenophobia and intolerance that really does exist on the right. It's not that there aren't people who hate Muslims for all the wrong reasons. I mean, there are those people, and you know, I would imagine 100% of them vote Republican at the moment. But First of all, I don't think you can use the word jigger anymore. No? Okay. That's off the list, too. Yeah. Uh, do you practice religion? Are you religious at all? No, no, I'm I'm atheist. Uh, I'm an atheist, but had you ever been religious? No, no, but I I'm Not very interested he... in spiritual experience. I mean, so I, I've taken psychedelics. I spend a lot of time meditating. I, I'm. Did you take ayahuasca? I've not taken ayahuasca, but I saw you take ayahuasca. Yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah. but Although, I've heard about more intense experiences that were even greater than mine. So I'm kind of. It's not really like my favorite thing to do. Like I like mushrooms. I like microdosing. Right. I feel like right. everybody should be into microdosing a little bit more than they are. So I'm going to push that envelope. Yeah. When I'm done with this documentary. Okay. Because cool. I think yeah. I'm hearing a lot of conversations from people about it and the studies and and I like sharpening. You know, like that little. I like putting on a little extra light in your brain and looking at things differently. Obviously, that's the point of psychedelics for a lot of people. But have you microdosed ever? I, I've never. No, I have macrodosed. Oh, yes. Uh, to better and worse effect, depending on the day. Yes. This backyard gets very, very beautiful when you're on mushrooms, and it I moves. I can imagine. Actually, when I yeah. had it designed, I said, I want this to move and be like a magic carpet when I'm, if I, if I ever take mushrooms, which I probably did the next day. So it all worked out nicely for me and my, yeah. and my privilege. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of, first of all, psychedelics were essential for me when I was taking them, but then... I began to notice that it was, a, it was almost a psychological Russian roulette I was playing. Initially, there was n I just didn't even understand how someone could have a bad trip. I, you know, I had the concept of a bad trip, but I had just not even a moment of unpleasantness. And then I had one tour of hell that was just so awful that I just realized, okay, this, you know, you're spinning the wheel and you're not quite sure what you're going to get because my set and setting were, were identical. There was, just, you know, there was no variable that I could control where I could guarantee that it wasn't going to go bad. So, and then I got really into meditation and meditation for me is a much more governable way of targeting some of the same kinds of insights. I mean, you're not going to have a 10 hour experience of psychosis if you meditate 20 minutes a day. Is that what happened was 10 hours of psychosis? I mean, it was, it was an eternity, but when I finally came down and saw the clock, it was probably 10 hours. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. rough. What yeah. about edibles? Those are like, edibles? you can microdose those. Yeah. Five yeah. milligrams, 2.5 milligrams. I do that all the time too. Yeah. Yeah. It makes, it takes, the, it, it sands down the edges a little for me. You know, it makes everybody a little bit less annoying, makes everybody mm -hmm. a little bit less, more tolerable for me, like if I'm, you know. How many edibles have you taken now to weather this conversation? No, I haven't taken any today. I wanted to stay sharp for you. Okay. Because, yeah.
This is me and my least tolerable. Oh, okay, so let's talk about identity politics. Okay. You're against it. Yes. We've taken it yeah. too far, is your argument, right? I mean, the left has taken it too far. So, yeah, I'm worried that we've made it impossible to talk about the most important things that are happening in society. So racism, it's a real problem. We need to talk about it. Wealth inequality is a real problem. We need to talk about it. These two variables interact, and we need to talk about that interaction. But what we're finding now, you know, uniquely on the left, is that people are finding racism everywhere, even where it doesn't exist. And it's like our, the, our racism detectors are tuned too high. And so even, you know, a bad joke or somebody misspeaking can ruin their career you know, an, an errant tweet or whatever it is. I mean, there are many examples of this recently that we could talk about where in the worst case, nobody thinks the person is actually racist, right? I mean, that, this happens on other topics, but let's just take racism because it's your, the topic of your show. I guess so the clearest example for me is that, did you hear what happened at Netflix to this guy, Jonathan Friedland? Yeah, I know Jonathan. Yeah, so I met him once. I don't know him well, but I just, happened to have dinner with him with a bunch of other people and heard his story for the first time. And this is a crazy story. I mean, this is a kind of scapegoating that shouldn't be possible. So I, you know, I've mentioned this on my podcast before, but I'll just mention it here for those who haven't heard it. He was the communications director for Netflix. And Netflix had been receiving a ton of pushback for a comedy special from Tom Segura that had aired, Tom, who I think is hilarious. But Tom used in his special the word retard over and over again. And Netflix was blindsided by how controversial this was. They were hearing from families with kids with disabilities. And it's totally unacceptable to use this word retard. And so in a closed meeting at Netflix, he said, listen, we're all surprised about this. But clearly, we have to be more careful. You know, it seems like this word is like the N-word for the black community. But in this context, he actually used the N-word. So he spoke these magically destructive syllables, right? In the very act of admonishing the company about how careful they had to be about speech, right? And if you know anything about him, I mean, I, I don't, I, again, I've only met him once, but looking at his life story, this is like the least plausible candidate for a racist you're going to find. I mean, this is someone who has been engaged with the world as a foreign correspondent. He's lived in Africa for years. He's, he seemed left of left to me and certainly claimed to not have a racist bone in his body. And when I talked to him about this, it was clear that no one thought he was racist. And again, the act of using this term was a demonstration of non-bigotry, right? And yet the fact that he used this word caused such an uproar that he got fired. And people can go read, you know, read Hastings, PR release. And you can read Jonathan's rather abject apology. I mean, he looked to me like someone who had just been forced into some kind of Maoist re-education camp. He clearly thought he had done something wrong for speaking the word Voldemort. And we have to walk back from this. But don't you think we're in a state of complete overcorrection on many fronts, you know, with, with the Me Too movement, with the Time's Up movement, where there is a yeah, and I don't even think you have to say, you have to qualify it as saying he's not a racist, he lived in Africa. It's clear that he's not, I mean, that's not, I don't even think that's a, that's a point in the conversation. I would say that like, 
you, clearly, from you know, from what you're telling me and from what I've read, he was trying to educate. He, he was trying to do the right thing. Right. And it's the circumstance that he found himself in. The context of the world we're living in today is the reason why he had to be let go, or I don't know if he had to be let go, but the reason why they let him go, because if they don't stand for something, then they stand for nothing. That's kind of everybody's back is up against a wall. Yeah, but this is completely self-imposed. I mean, this is the circumstance of a madhouse. This is just masochism. And I mean, the first thing to point out is that it's totally dysfunctional politically because this is the left eating its own. If we get more of this, we're guaranteed to have Trump for four more years. What do you think about Al Franken? Well, again, so, so now there's a kind of a spectrum of indiscretion that we could talk about with, you know, Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein on one side and, you know, this story. Now, now we're conflating race and me too, but there's clearly a spectrum. And, you know, we should be very interested in distinguishing the points on this spectrum and also understanding how people can apologize and come back out of exile. I mean, so insofar as someone really did something wrong, I mean, I don't know where the black hole of just unrecoverable error exists. I mean, you know, no one's eager to hear Cosby or Weinstein apologize at this moment and try to get yeah, back into the world. Yeah, I think that's it. That's yeah. unrecoverable. Yeah. I mean, given, given some, you know, remarkable change in who they are, absent that, yeah, these are people who they both deserve to be punished by the justice system because they committed crimes. But there's a gray area where people do poorly considered things or, you know, where these are not evil people, but they do something stupid, they do something callous, they do something that may actually reveal their own racial bias in an ugly way that they then recognize, right? So what do you do in those moments? And how does someone recover? And how do we move forward to talk about this problem? It's not that nobody has any racial bias. It's not that racism isn't a problem. But if you are going to find I mean, there's just so many ridiculous examples of this. I mean, like the comic Bill Burr, right? You know, he occasionally gets attacked as being a racist, right? He's very edgy. He makes jokes that if you're narrowly focused on the joke and you're really worried about this issue, you can think, well, that's kind of a racist joke, right? But, you know, he's married to a black woman, right? So when he gets attacked as a racist, you know, his response is, listen, if I'm your racist, you know, you've got bigger problems. But don't right? you think that's a racist thing to say? I mean, from talking to people who claim to not be racist, the first thing out of everyone's mouth is, I'm married to a black woman, or I'm friends with a black person, or I'm not a racist. And right, right. there and then, that says to me, yeah, you are. Like, no, no. That, that you, doesn't you've been, you've been sold you. this meme. I don't know who invented this. I want to find the genius who invented this meme. But the idea that the, some of my best friends are black defense is not only a bad defense, but a sign of racism, that's bullshit. Right. But if that so shouldn't be your defense. If, you, if you're not a racist, that shouldn't be your defense. Your defense should be yourself and your behavior, not the fact that but, you have people who but that's a, that's a you super, may or may not have duped into being friends with you. No, no, but that's a super salient part of your behavior, right? So if, like, if some of your best friends are black, you're white, and some of your best, best friends are black, and let's just track the meanings of these words, right? Best friends. Just how racist are you going to be? Let's talk about what we mean by racism. It seems to me that there are probably only two kinds of racism that we need to worry about. There's real racism, right, from people who are racist. And what that means is these are people who don't actually share our political goals. They don't want to live in a society where people enjoy political equality, right? They think white people are better than black people or whatever their brand of racism is. 
they think some people shouldn't have the same rights and freedoms as other people because of these important racial differences. They think, you know, certain people should get out of the country and move back to Africa, whatever the, their belief system is. I mean, clearly that kind of racism exists. I, I think it's a, you know, a tiny number of people at this moment in our society subscribe to it. And there's probably a gray area around that where you haven't thought through any kind of noxious political program, but you actually just don't like people from other races because you're not comfortable around them. And this extends to other cultures, right? You're a xenophobe. You, just, you don't want to hear people speaking with accented English, right? You just want white, blonde people all around you, right? That's how you're comfortable. Okay, that's racism. That's racism that some people can completely grow out of by just having more exposure right, to yeah. different people. And that's, okay, great. We want them to grow out of it. The people who are irredeemable, we call neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and we want to you know, keep them at bay in any way we can. And we're right to hate the fact that we have a president who can't say anything ethically intelligible about this problem as it exists. Okay. There's another type of racism that totally legitimate to worry about, which often is called systemic or institutional racism, which is bias somehow gets built into our laws or our institutions or the way we're doing things. And it may not, in every instance, it may not reflect any individual's racist bias, but yet it works against the advantage of one or another group, mm -hmm. right? And then there are perverse versions of this that had the best of intentions, where you have a bunch of committed non-racists actually suddenly realizing they've become racists. And this just happened at Harvard, where Harvard has been systematically keeping Asians out of their student body because if they just let them in on their merits, right, they would have far too many Asians. It would be something like 50% and far too few African-Americans because they have this very liberal and obviously ethical commitment to diversity, right? But this has perversely caused them to enact an explicitly racist practice, right? I mean, if you actually you look at the details of this court case, it just looks horrible. This is what you Asians. discussed with Colvin Hughes when he was on, too. You guys right. touched on this. Yeah, yeah. So this is untenable. And I think, so again, that's an, uh, there are examples of real psychological racism where people are assholes and they don't know it and they're just people we can't collaborate with until they change radically, right? And then there are kinks in the system that work to the disadvantage of groups and disproportionately African-Americans in our society. There's no question that if you could look for all of the ways in which systemic racism has worked against some group, it has not been, for the most part, Asian-Americans. It's probably been African-Americans far and away more than any other group. All of that's worth rectifying insofar as we can figure it out. But there are ways that we will clearly fail to figure it out. And one way to fail is to think that any difference in representation you see anywhere with respect to groups must be a symptom of racism. So unless 13% of anesthesiologists are black, well, then there's some problem of racism in the anesthesiology community because they're keeping blacks out of that. Unless 50% are women, there must be some misogyny there keeping women out. We know that's not true, right? And yet that's, on the left, that's the spirit in which we're looking at any kind of 
disparity in representation. This is what happened at Google with the Google memo. Yeah, but but the disparity just seems to be prevalent on in all industries. I mean, I think the disparity is true because it's it's everywhere. There aren't an right. equal amount of women represented in any industry. Well, that's, but that's not true. That's well, not true. okay, for, for most industries, there aren't. I mean, unless it's a female-driven industry. I mean, if you talk about government, I mean, the reason, you know, if you're talking about identity politics, like I feel very passionately about mm. women electing minorities, marginalized groups, LGBT communities. And like, yeah, I am an identity. Like, I, I feel that very strongly that I want women represented in, and we have to have equal representation in government in order to be treated fairly. There, I mean, I don't know why that's wrong. I mean, well, why, you know? That's, that's not wrong. And there's, I think there's some jobs where you definitely want something close to a perfect mirroring of the general population. And I would think in government, that's certainly one. But in other jobs, it's much more a matter of people's interests. You know, so, so there are fields that are not at all menial, that are high-level academic right, fields. Right, but if we're talking where, about CEOs, I mean, that's not a, a disputable number. You know, the right. percentage of women that are running, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, you know, but that, I mean, so, but, so what explains that? Is there a star chamber where the men get together and say, let's keep them at the level of vice president because we don't want them running these companies? Or are there other effects? Is there just the pretty impressive asymmetry of what it takes to raise kids. You know, first you got to get pregnant, then you have to, if you care, to be a mom who's breastfeeding and, and really involved, you're losing, you know, at least a year of your life, right? Oh, well, well you know, yeah, yeah, more than that. Yeah, well, and, 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 and many, many want to lose many more years of their career seeking there for good reason. That has an effect on people's careers. And we know, I mean, again, I'm not super versed in the, this particular literature, but you can definitely find economists and academics who will show you data that argues that the so-called wage disparity between men and women and these, the differences in career types and in representation is the result of, one, a significant asymmetry in just what it takes to raise kids and the norms around that. And one could argue the norms we want to keep around that, right? I mean, my wife has had much more responsibility raising our kids than I have. And, you know, it's not to say that that couldn't have been flipped in some world, but frankly, our kids are better off that we didn't flip it. You know, it's, it's just, she's, she's a better mom than I would have been. And it's not to say I'm not super involved, but there's a difference and the difference starts with our biology, right? It's not, you know, there are hormonal differences between men and women that are relevant here. You know, testosterone is good for some things and it's not so good for other things. But in science, yes, in engineering and in physics and in mathematics, these are disproportionately male endeavors, right? But if you look in psychology, if you look in biology, if you look in medicine, many of the higher level sciences, it's either equal or disproportionately female. Psychology is like ruled by women at this point. It's just, it's more than 60%, I think. And there are departments in organizations like HR departments, I think are something like 90% or 95% female, right? Well, because uh, clearly you can't report anything to a man. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's, so, but that's, part of this is people segregating based on interests and part of it is traditional norms that we might want to reconsider. But I, I just think this is also especially relevant. 
there are now data, there's been a massive study on, I think it was like 80,000 people in dozens of countries, where it showed that if you give people more resources, you know, more wealth and opportunity, and more political freedom to do whatever the hell they want, there is greater disparity in these roles, male and female, than there is if there's fewer resources and less freedom. So you give people wealth and opportunity. You give people freedom. Well, where did they do that? I mean, where did they do this study? This was in in dozens of countries. It was like 80,000 subjects. And there's like a a straight line between, you know, wealth and freedom increasing and a measure of disparity in many of these fields. So fewer women become software engineers, the wealthier and freer society gets. Because women don't, you know, it's not to say that no women want to be software engineers, but it tends not to be their favorite thing, apparently, right? Well, let's, okay, let's pivot back to race, though, on this subject matter, because Mm -hmm. so, like, I know you got, you caught a lot of heat from your conversation with Ezra Klein, you know, uh, your conversation with the author, with Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve, about affirmative action and about the subject matter. Did you Along the way, have you had your opinion changed at all, or do you maintain the same position you've always had with regard to affirmative action, like what we're talking about with Harvard? Well, actually, I don't have a strong opinion about affirmative action. I think there are probably cases where we still want it. I think you could easily see why we wanted it some decades ago. But what about the subject matter of the bell curve, like about, you know, African Americans having lower IQ, whether that be genetic or whether that be, you know, their environment that they're growing, like, do you, do you still feel the same way you've always felt about that? Well, I, I feel that the topic can't be discussed. What I always felt about it, and the only reason why I had Murray on my podcast is that I recognized a free speech issue and an intellectual honesty issue and an ethical issue around treating people as pariahs who are simply stumbling upon data that we more or less care about. Now, I don't care at all about racial differences in IQ. I have zero interest in that. I actually have virtually zero interest in IQ. Intelligence is interesting, but measuring human intelligence is not something that I find especially interesting. Really? Why? Why not? Well, it's just, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, IQ isn't everything. And just as I wouldn't wake up tomorrow thinking, what I really want to do is be able to measure somebody's sense of humor. We're going to figure out who's actually the funniest person on earth, we're going to create a test and we're going to test people. And then we're going to select our comedians that way. You know, maybe that could be useful in some weird possible future, but uh, you know, I see you sort of know it when you see it. Right. And I, it's also malleable. Don't you think in IQ, like it can change well, over time, I'm, depending on what you're exposed to. I think it, it can degrade based on head injuries or drug use or, but it can also age. go in the op- opposite direction. Don't you think? The data on IQ is is remarkably depressing in that regard. I mean, it's well, just, I talk you, my my psychiatrist, Dr. Daniel Siegel. Do you know him? Uh, I know Dan. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He he thinks that. I mean, he has done a bunch of studies, and we've talked a lot about your IQ. I mean, we actually interviewed him on my show once uh-huh. about your adolescent IQ and when your IQ, you know, when does it stop growing? When what impairs it? Obviously, drug use at a young age mm. and older age abuse, but that you know you can always grow your IQ. That's his stance. Yeah, that's not the stance of, I like Dan, but uh, Dan, you are wrong with respect to the literature on this. So 
the contribution IQ is both genetic and environmental. There's no question about that. And that's true of basically everything we care about. And it seems that almost everything we care about is basically 50-50 environment and genes. With IQ, there's sort of a weird effect where your genes seem to make even more of a contribution the older you get. This is something that is perhaps ill understood, but there's some effect of you know, people who have a very high IQ, say, and are just, you know, fixated on computers and math may take opportunities and spend their time in, in, in a way, and again, this is kind of driven by genes, at least, you know, 50%, but their environment begins to just get changed as a result of the choices they make in life, and they begin to conform even more to, you know, what you would expect on the basis of their genes. So, to my knowledge, there's no story in the psychometric literature that suggests that, you know, you start out with an IQ of X and you can add 20 points to that based on doing something. You think you're stuck with whatever number you have forever? Well, close. Until we actually find, you know, real smart drugs or other ways of intruding into our brains that change things. I mean, but again, IQ isn't all of intelligence. There's no question we're getting smarter in some ways based on the fact that we have augmented ourselves with our smartphones and Google searches and uh, just access to information. So it's just when you just think of what you can do now cognitively based on just performing a Google search, that's not a matter of IQ getting higher, but you're a cyborg, essentially. You're not just you anymore. You're part of a system. And actually, this is ties into political correctness for me, because I think political correctness is something that just makes people stupid. It puts blinders on where they just can't see obvious points, right? They, I agree with you on that. But I think when the injury is so deep, there needs to be reform. When the injury is so deep with what has been, you know, like, say, say we take the Me Too movement, say we take the civil rights movement, when the injury is so deep and people have stepped so far out of bounds and it's gotten so loud and so noisy and so violent, that there needs to be an overcorrection. And we're living in this moment right now where there is a major overcorrection, mm. much to people's, many people's chagrin. They don't like it. Nobody, I mean, I don't like it. I can't right. even hit on a guy at work if I want to. Right. Not that I do that, I do. Right. But you know what I mean? Every, everyone's kind of, you know, in a situation right now. But when the injury is deep like that, I would argue that there is a call for per political correctness. There is a call to ameliorate the damage that's been done and find a middle balanced ground where people aren't overstepping. But why an overcorrection? Why not just a correction? Because I don't think, because a correction, because wherever we go, we're going to go back a little. So we have to overcorrect to end up in the middle. Uh, yeah, I don't think we do. I mean, so, so because to overcorrect, I mean, the over part is just a statement. I think we overcorrect and then we get to a correct place. Okay, but the over part is just naming the victims who are the new scapegoats of this regime. The over part are all the people who aren't actually racist, who are having their reputations destroyed, or aren't actually sexist, or didn't actually Like the barbecue backies of the world? Or you, would you, like, you know, those, all these internet, you know, the people who call uh, the police at the Starbucks, the woman who called on the black guys right. at Starbucks, or the right. barbecue woman who called when they were having a barbecue outside. Right. Those types of people's lives have been ruined yeah, by well, making a phone call. And it was racist, right. but it wasn't, I know what you're saying is a little bit different. 
and new differently nuanced but these people's lives have been ruined would you say i mean that seems unfair that they made a you know they could learn their lesson some of these people have had to move they've lost their jobs you know their lives are kind of destroyed no it's awful and and i don't actually know what was true in those cases i mean those could have been examples of racism or not you don't know cornerstone kathy what's her name corner store kathy no no i miss that story let's put this on you because comedy it seems is just the front line of this the new culture war so you have i'm gonna take this isn't stand-up comedy but robert downey jr in tropic thunder doing that character in blackface right could that be done today i would say it could be done in the future but it can't be done right now Right. I mean, that was fucking funny. It was hilarious. It was, yeah. yes, that and was hilarious. not racist at all. Right. right? Like, it was the opposite of racism. This was a post-racial comedy. I mean, this was, from my point of view, a flag planted in fundamentally new territories. Like, we had gotten past this problem. Right. And we could make fun of it from every side. But I also think that movie was so farcical that it wasn't, like, you know, Megyn Kelly saying, I, what's wrong with blackface is rooted in reality, whereas that, that movie, Tropic Thunder, was not rooted in any sense of reality. So right. it's like airplane mode, you know, the movie airplane, yeah. not the actual yeah. airplane mode on your yeah. Blackberry. Or sorry, we don't have those anymore either. I would just went back in time. I, I like, I mean, I think you're right about that. But I, again, I would argue that's the overcorrection. And in 10 years when it's done in the real, like, you can't be serious about blackface. You have to be joking about it. Because Megyn Kelly wasn't joking. She was serious. And I think that's the difference. Let's take Megyn Kelly, because that, that's a harder case. So I watched what she said, and I watched her apology. And so I don't actually know who Megyn Kelly is. I've never met her. I haven't paid attention to her career much up until this point. Maybe she's got some skeleton in her closet that's just going to come leaping out after we have this conversation. But as far as what she said... You know, she was tone deaf with respect to the phrase blackface. You know, that's plutonium, and she didn't seem to recognize it. But the sentiment she was expressing was, listen, if you're going to go out as Diana Ross, why can't you put brown makeup on so you look like Diana Ross, right, for Halloween? Why is this impossible? Right? That is something we should be able to talk about. That's a Tracy Ellis Ross question, I feel like. She could have been just conveying that confusion. Like, listen, when I was a kid, we could just put makeup on her face. We had no problem. And obviously she, she was a, just a commercial for white privilege there, viewed from the left. It's like, okay, when you were a kid, you didn't have to worry about black people. Now you wish you didn't have to worry about them again, right? That's the way the left viewed it. But I think she was just honestly, again, to be charitable. And I think we have to be charitable in cases like this. She could have just been honestly expressing confusion about like, What's the problem with putting on makeup if you're going as a character? I think she used this phrase, if you're going as a character. So then she, you know, we all know what happened. She was crucified, and then she gave this apology. And to my eye, this was, you know, people have joked about this. This was like a hostage video, right? She just had to hold up a newspaper to show, you know, proof of life. But it was almost too much of an apology. But it struck me as sincere. It struck me as someone who's trying to save their career, right? But it didn't strike me as... This is opportunistic. I just have to go through the motions to save my career. I don't know why I have to do this. But this was like, this is someone who had just been inundated with criticism mm. that she fundamentally didn't expect. And she felt terrible about it. And she just threw herself on her sword. And that wasn't accepted. And so I think we're in a situation 
which is somewhat similar to the Jonathan Friedland situation, which is a person who no one really thinks was expressing racism. She certainly wasn't expressing, listen, I want to live in a world where white people get to do their white things because I'm white and I love, you know, and I love it. Right. That wasn't what she was saying. And there was nothing, you know, if I had to guess, I would think she's committed to the same political goals of equality that we are. And even someone with that much privilege can't survive saying the wrong thing at this moment. And I, I think we have to walk back from here. So you, you probably relate to it a lot, right? With, with the kind of, you know, kickback you've gotten after you did the Murray interview and after Ezra Klein, because I've yeah. heard you on your podcast talk oh, about yeah. it, that you were inundated. Did you feel like your career was in harm's way? Well, no, because I don't have a boss, but I have very intentionally created a job where I can't get fired, where at least, you know, thousands of people would have to wake up tomorrow morning and say, okay, that thing you said on your last podcast, I no longer support you. My audience is my boss, right? Mm -hmm. And it's an amazingly privileged position because what I would have to do would, it would have to be so beyond the pale that there would just have to be unanimity that mm -hmm. I had just done something horrible. And the only possible corruption from my point of view of this process is for me to become so careful to not offend my audience that I'm self-censoring. And I, you know, the one time I ran into a possible choice point around Trump where I discovered that some significant percentage of my audience actually liked Trump, which made no fucking sense to me, I just went right into it and spent, you know, I've probably spent 40 hours on my podcast just running down Trump because I just think he's a, the most morally damaged person we've ever had in public life. So as long as I do that, as long as I'm honest, I'm fine. But on many of my podcasts, I say things, I mean, I've probably said something here, I've certainly said something that could be excerpted here that would get me fired from Netflix, mm -hmm. right? Or get me fired from Megyn Kelly's next job. And if I haven't been fired from Netflix, but do you think about it as a comic? Have you have you reined yourself in in the last 12 uh, months? I don't do stand up anymore. So like I wouldn't be able to do stand up right now in this day and age. I mean, I look back at some of the jokes I made and they were all like, you know, about Jewish people, Asians, Angelina Jolie's kids, black people. I mean, I used to make fun right. of the way black people spelled their name on stage. I mean, I did so many things that would not be acceptable now. And I also don't feel like I want to do them. But I do agree with you that you it is important to have honest conversations and reflections and, and, and intelligent conversations with people that can inform opinions and have disagreeing opinions, obviously. I mean, I right. want to learn, you know? Yeah. So I think as long as you're not being shameful or hateful towards a certain group, then it's okay to talk about almost anything. Although I think the context and, and the history is important to always keep in mind about, like, you know, I'm so interested in this white privilege notion because it didn't knock me on the head until a few years ago. And that embarrasses the shit out of me. Right. But I didn't realize how privileged I've been my whole life. I just thought I was super talented and everybody knew it. I mean, I moved to L.A. from New Jersey when I was 19. I was like, I'll just go. to. I went to community college for a half a semester mm. and was like, this is stupid. I'm not going to learn right now in my life. I wanted to go to L.A. I'm, I think I'll just go become famous. And right. that's what I did. Right. It was super easy, a little bit too easy. I would argue that you're, again, now watch me put my foot in my mouth, but Yes, there's such a thing as white privilege, but to become a successful stand-up comic, that doesn't seem to be a zone where white privilege is a major variable. Because for the longest time, there have been fantastic black comics, right, who are 
every bit as fantastic and celebrated as white comics, right? So no one's surprised to see the next super funny black comic show up. This is not the same thing as, you know, becoming president or, you know, becoming a neurosurgeon or whatever it is, where you have some lack of a norm. I, you know, I think you did it on your own. I don't think, and there was no point where- Well, there are definitely different, there are definitely more white comedians. I mean, there are spaces for black comics only. There are like comedy clubs that are only for black people. There are, right. I mean, you know, you go to do a lineup, there would be one person. There were never black women performing with me. Maybe one Retta I would perform with once in a while. But right. there was definitely like a dearth of black comedians when I, where I was performing in all the white clubs, the Improv, Laugh Factory, Comedy Store. There were black people for sure, comics, but it was overwhelmingly white. It wasn't equal by any means. And I didn't even think well, about it. It can't be equal. If it's, but if it's more than 13%, then they're overrepresented. Overrepresented, yeah. yeah. But I was, it was an advantage to be a girl. It was an advantage to be pretty. There was a dearth of yeah. female comics. So that was always an advantage. Like everything that would, should have worked against me worked for me yeah. in a situation if you're talking about being like, you know, in right. part of a marginalized group or a minority. But that's another thing that can't be talked about. I mean, the advantage of being pretty is a real advantage. There's some circumstances where it's, there's a disadvantage, perhaps. You might not be taken seriously in some contexts, but in most contexts, it's a real advantage. And we find it difficult to talk about people's looks and the consequences. We find it difficult to talk about intelligence. Forget about IQ, forget about racial differences in IQ. Just acknowledging that there are differences in intelligence anywhere is taboo, right? And I don't think it is. I don't think talking about intelligence differences in general is taboo. I think saying that there are racial differences in IQ is taboo and well, sure. as, it, as, it, as it should be. Well, no, well, the general problem is that whatever is true is true. And insofar as we're looking to find out what's true in the world, we will be continually stumbling upon facts that are politically inconvenient. To take the general picture here, if you isolate two groups of people, if you talk about the Norwegians versus the Australian Aborigines, right? They have been isolated for tens of thousands of years and therefore have genetic differences and they have massive cultural differences. So you have groups that are environmentally and genetically distinct in all kinds of ways and these differences have consequences and they very likely have consequences for everything we care about, right? intelligence being only one thing we care about. So if you test groups looking for group averages for things like, I mean, if we had a test for sense of humor, we could add that to the battery. But just as they're going to vary with respect to skin color and height and muscle mass and, you know, anything else that's just starkly physical, they're going to vary with respect to differences neurologically and neurophysiologically that relate to everything that human minds do. And so insofar as we go looking for these things, or even if we don't, if we just accidentally find these things, if we look for the genetics of intelligence, we will find that its genetic underpinnings are not perfectly equal in their representation across all human populations. It would be a miracle if that were the case. So someone's going to come out on top with respect to one of these variables, someone in terms of you know, the mean average of a group, and someone's going to come out on the bottom and there'll be groups in the middle. And what we need to take refuge in here is not our ability to lie to one another about this and destroy people's reputations when they stumble upon politically inconvenient data. 
we need to take refuge in two things. One is that we know what the answer is politically. We know we want to live in societies where people have equal opportunities and where they have equal rights and where people who are unlucky in one way or another are cared for to some minimum standard that we can all live with. And the other thing is that the variance between groups is, in the general case, totally subsumed by the variance within group, right? So it's just, you know, the fact that there's some mean difference in the results on IQ tests between Asians and whites tells you absolutely nothing about the likely intelligence of the next white or Asian person who walks through the door. The mean differences are irrelevant. You have to think about people as individuals. And we know that individuals can be anywhere on this continuum. And we just treat people based on their individual merits. But generally speaking, I think we have to acknowledge how much inequality there is in this world with respect to everything we care about. I mean, it's really, it's, it's luck inequality. You did not pick your genes. You didn't pick your parents. You're not responsible for anything about you that has allowed you to succeed to the degree that you have. I would, uh, that's not true. You can, you, you're responsible. For, in my you're view, respons- you're not. responsible for the thing, how you behave and how you conduct yourself. And well, no, no, because it, look at the tools you're using to behave and conduct yourself. How much credit can you take for not having been born a sociopath? Right? Well, I mean, that's debatable. I don't think I'm a sociopath, but I... I don't think you are either, but I'm but saying... But I could have directed were, myself. I directed myself. I could have redirected... My parents were not good examples of... I could have taken a page right. out of their book and become like, you know, they weren't terrible, but they were pretty lazy. They sure. didn't really do much. You know, they want... So I could have easily directed myself in many different ways. I mean, I'm responsible for what I wanted. You know what you want. Who's responsible for that? Well, so my view there is, and this is another topic, is that, you know, I think free will is an illusion. I think that every choice you make is based on prior causes, which you didn't author, right? Again, you didn't pick your genes and you didn't pick the environmental influences on them. And yet those, that's the total story as to how your brain came to be in the state it's in right now. So you think it's kind of already lined up for you? Like everything's mapped out for what's going to happen in your life? No, because it's, you know, this, I'm not saying the future already exists, but I'm saying you, the conscious you, the conscious witness of your experience, didn't choose your words in that last sentence. I mean, they just came, right? There was no point at which you said, well, I'm going to say the sentence exactly this way, right? And when you make an error, you know, if you misspeak, if you speak ingrammatically, like I just, you know, stumbled there, I didn't create that. That was a neurological glitch, right? The fact that I can follow the rules of English grammar right now and get to the end of the sentence in a way that makes sense that's a mystery to me subjectively, right? And we know the brain is doing it. And the brain's doing it however well it's doing it. And that's genes and environment. That's the physics of things, right? So the universe is just happening and we're part of it. Okay. So with regard to Jonathan Friedland, Friedland? Friedman? Friedland. Uh, Friedland, yeah. He made a huge impression now. I I like Jonathan, actually. He was a really nice guy before he passed away. But so with in, the, in that instance, who is the judge? Okay, so the judge and jury is Netflix. They're saying you're not allowed to say this, right? To, to, to use that word, the N-word, in, a, in an office setting, in any place, mm. it's inappropriate. You're saying that it was unwarranted, that you know, he shouldn't have been fired. 
But what if there was a black woman in that room? And I mean, what about her feelings? What about what that word means to her? Well, it depends on why he was using it. And from what I know of why he was using it, he was using it in a way that communicated the opposite of racism, right? It wasn't like, listen, I like to use this word because this is what I call black people, right? And I'm not going to be censored, right? That's racism, right? That is somebody who's trying to offend other people and demean them because he thinks they're less valuable than members of his own race are. So that, yeah, but it's that also, should be you, fireable, right? You could also argue that you shouldn't say that word at all. He could have gotten his point across by saying it's the N-word. It's tantamount to the N-word. He could have, and that was his mistake. Turns out it was highly impractical for him to have made that choice. But yeah, again, I wasn't in the room. I've only spoken to him in the aftermath. But I can well imagine the reason why he made the opposite choice was First of all, he knows what his intentions are, right? He knows he's just trying to communicate, man, we have to be super sensitive about this. Like this word retard, the self-preservation is creeping in here. Like I'm using the word retard. I'm not saying the R word because it's, it's not as radioactive as the N word. But he was simply trying to communicate, listen, the R word is like the N word. And we didn't know that, okay? Now, you may want to debate that point, but his intentions, in my view, are all that matters, right? What you want to do is fire the real racist, the actually toxic person, the person who's treating people badly. The fact that these syllables have such a magical hold on us politically now that there's no context in which they can be spoken. I mean, so like, just imagine if you're in a linguistics class and the subject is the power of the N-word, right? Or, I mean, this comes back to, in, in just in English class, people are reading Huck Finn. The word is strewn yeah, throughout I, the text and they have to read this word. And there's some people who are censoring that now. But right? the context is different. This is a white man using that word. And that's, that's the issue. That's the issue for people that have a problem with it. I mean, we don't get to decide as white people when we're allowed to use that word. We're not allowed to use it. That's been made pretty clear. Like, especially if you're in a, if you're in a class in college and you're talking, yeah, and there's, you know, it's like a, I don't know, like, you know, spoken word or prose and you're all being free and you have an understanding that you're in that environment. When you're in a work environment and you're a person of color and somebody throws that word, out there that is your superior? I mean, we don't know what that word feels like as a black person. Well, yeah, but I think that what we know now is that the sensitivity is getting turned up to 11, not for just for that word, but for many other things, right? So just, you know, for anything related to sexism, anything related to just interpersonal awkwardness. What happened to Friedland strikes me as, I mean, to take it into the Me Too zone, it strikes me as analogous to like a guy goes to hug a woman based on the, the physics. It's something's awkward and he accidentally grazes her boob, right? Or, you know, puts his hand in the wrong place. And yet you absolutely know that this was not an attempt at groping. You know the guy, you know what your relationship is, you know what his response was. This was physics, right? This was like someone who's just like reaches to hug you, but you turn and they graze your boob and that, right. okay. so so, and that gets scored mindful. as... And you decide to score that as groping. And yet it absolutely wasn't. And you have every reason to know that it wasn't. And when you say 
listen, I, I feel like you just groped me. And then you get a fulsome apology, right? Like, honestly, I tripped on the table. And this is totally believable to everyone. And the person still loses their career. That's the situation we're in. So you're, we're talking about intention, right? So if we're talking about intention and Jonathan Friedman is... Yeah, Friedland. Fried, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I really can't... Yeah, I had his yeah, name yeah, in the beginning. Right, yeah. Jonathan Friedland's intention was to, you know, stamp out racism, you know, and like tamp it down and just get... And, and really make... Uh, to eradicate it and say, okay, or eradicate bad use of words, poor choices of words, like the R word or the N word. If, if his intention was great, that's great, but that's that's a white person getting the benefit of you're arguing for the benefit of it, of his intention. Black right. people don't get the benefit of their intention a lot. You know, black people don't. If a like a girl calls the police on two black guys who are barbecuing outside, there's a chance that those guys could end up in jail or even worse, get shot for absolutely no reason right. when their intention was just to have a nice day out. And her intention is something much different. So if we're talking about in, you know, I know what you're saying about the argument of intention, but black people don't always get the, the benefit of, of intention. They don't right, get the benefit but, of that doubt. But that's a problem. We recognize that that's a problem that we want to overcome. What I mean by intention is what's really going on inside the other person that's motivating their behavior. It's what their actual goals are. It's what they want the world to be like. And we want to understand what people want in this world. And we want to find our allies. And what we have now is a system of institutionalized taboos and sensitivities where we are reliably destroying our allies as a kind of human sacrifice, as though this were going to keep the evil away. And it's actually going to have the opposite effect. I, I'm seeing it have the opposite effect. It will give us Trump for four more years if we do this publicly enough. If we get a few more Matt Damons who say something reasonable and then get howled off the stage for having deigned as a holder of white male privilege to say anything about, in this case, me too. But do you think it, I mean, you're saying it's up to w white people to decide, to decide if what, what, what's ill-intended or not. Well, for the most part, on the left, a lot of this is how white people are treating other white people. In many cases, it's not even people of color getting upset over these things. They're the most animated and vengeful inquisitors of the fringe on the left seem to be white people. But in any case, whether they're white or but on people matters of color, of race, don't you think we should be deferring to people of color on matters of race? How are we able to decide? Like, how are white people able to understand? That's like rich people deciding what's good for poor people. It's not fair unless you're a part of the, you know, if you're in that system. Well, it's just, what's the goal here? I, my goal, and because it's my goal, I think it should be everyone's goal. I mean, that's why I have the goal. My goal is to get to a society where we don't have to worry about these superficial differences between people because they mean nothing, where race becomes totally uninteresting and gender with respect to political equality and anything else becomes totally uninteresting. These differences shouldn't matter, right? We, right, we all it, feel that. But in and so order how do we get there? To, in order to get there, I think you have to go through a moment like we're going through right now, where you have to be more sensitive, where you have to be more thoughtful about how your actions and your words are received rather than your own intention. Right. That's a great point. We're talking about there are practical and impractical, effective and ineffective ways to communicate. 
right? So there are situations where absolutely, whatever your intentions are, if you're stupid enough to use the N-word, well, you're, yeah, you're going to alienate everyone, you know, white or black, who's listening to you, and your actual intentions are not coming across, right? So you're a moron, or you're, you're just a bad communicator, or drunk, or I mean, something is wrong. But there are definitely situations, and I think Jonathan Friedland was in one of them, where his intentions were good. He had an internal model of why he was actually using the word, which would be more salient, more effective, more successful than just using the euphemism of the N-word. And he was clearly wrong about that, right, given the result. But what bothers me is that the people who decided to fire him and the people who below them who celebrated his firing, I think it's true to say that none of them think he has a racist bone in his body, right? So that's a scapegoat. But I don't think that's a safe thing to say. I think, well, I think having... I don't think that's, that's I, again, I don't think that's for you to say how anyone else, how it made anyone else feel when he said that. Have you ever taken the, the implicit bias test from Harvard? Yeah, but this has been discredited to a degree that is now, you know, worrying everyone who ever referenced it. The test so, has yeah, been. So, yeah, I mean, I know Mazarin Banaji, who's one of the original authors of it, even they say you can't rely on it to diagnose anyone's racial bias. And, and this is like one of these exports from social science that got immense traction before it was validated. There's no way to be confident that it's a good test of anything, cer cer certainly at the individual level. You know? So, okay, so then if we're talking, but on the subject of implicit bias versus, right. so if we're talking about the guy who got fired at Netflix, we're talking about, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think, I, you know, you're probably right. Nobody probably thinks Jonathan's a racist, but I think it's the matter of implicit bias, which is directed towards people of color, which we are not as conscious of as we are right. about being actively racist. Okay, well, so let's say we have implicit biases, right? Which we do. We definitely have implicit biases, but it's not perfectly clear that these are the source of racism, right? But let, let's say we have implicit bias, and in almost everyone, it is weighted toward preferring people who look like them. If you're white, you'll feel more comfortable the moment you see a white face versus a black face or any other face. And presumably, if you're black, you'll return the favor. It's easy to see that could be kind of the biological and uninspectable, un, you know, by definition, unconscious source of some racial tension. Or people are reliably uncomfortable around people who don't look like them. It's easy to see how that gets leveraged into something that we don't want. The question is what to do with that fact about the human mind, if in fact it is a fact. I think what we do with it is we have higher norms and goals and aspirations that we talk about, that we have articulated, that we enshrine at the level of law and institutions that anchor us to our better selves, right? Because there are many things like this. We find certain things disgusting, and we don't want to be motivated by that disgust. Many heterosexual men find the thought of two guys kissing or more disgusting, right? But to say that they're homophobic is unfair if these are men who are totally committed to gay rights and gay marriage and have gay friends. And yeah, they just don't want to 
they don't want to picture their gay friends giving each other blowjobs, right? They, they, because they just, they, there's I mean, I don't really want to see a straight couple kissing either, right. you know? So, yeah. So, I mean, but there's a lot of things that, that we have a reaction to that we can't actually get underneath, you know? And maybe one day we can get underneath it and we'll, we'll be able to reset all the dials and we'll be exactly who we want to be or feel we should be. But before that time, we can create a higher level operating system which is our stated goals and the laws we pass and the relationships we form where we enshrine our better selves in society. And I, mean, I think that's what we do across the board. The question is, take the case of you know, Megyn Kelly, was her use of the phrase blackface, was her wondering whether you really should be limited in how you can dress up on Halloween based on this implicit, I'm not really comfortable around black people module that every white brain has. And we're just stipulating that. Don't know if that's true, but let's say it is. Who knows? The most important thing is what happened afterwards. The most important thing is she said this thing that was ill-considered that got just a ferocious counter-response. And she apologized in as full a way as, you know, I've seen someone muster in, in quite some time, right? I mean, it was just, I can't tell you how sorry I am. And she was just, it was too much, but it, it did not seem dishonest. And what should happen there, right? Should we burn her as a witch? Is that no, like, well, I like agree a, with you. I, 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 think, I think it's the, you know, I think the N word is just not allowed. We're just not allowed to use it. No white person should be able to use it. It just elicits too much hate. It's like calling a gay person the F word. It's, it elicits too much pain. You know, it's what, you're use, what people have used to like oppress them for years. But it's and what it communicates. What should elicit the pain is clearly the intention to elicit the pain, right? I hate you and here's how I'm going to say it. Or just the callousness, which is disregarding the possible consequences of using this word. And I'll grant you, there, there are gray areas where it's like, okay, why did you use the word there? I mean, that was just, I mean, that was callous. That was representing a, mm -hmm. a lack of sensitivity to how people are going to feel. But there are clearly cases where to not use the word, I mean, reading Huck Finn in English class, right? the word comes up again and again, and it's awkward. And we need to be able to talk about why it's awkward. Yeah, but I think that's what that book is about. It's there for that lesson. No, that but there are people who are expurgating the book. I mean, you know, you know, there are people who won't read the word or people who think the book shouldn't be taught because it was just, you know, it's just white privilege to be able to read Huck Finn. Again, it's important for me to imagine what the best possible future looks like because that's the only way we're going to get there. And the best possible future for me is we don't have to worry about any of this stuff because we have societies where political equality is a given, where our stumbling upon facts no longer puts us in a state of political or moral emergency because we can't figure out how to talk about these facts. And there, there will be those facts. I mean, the, the one fact I brought up in my conversation with Ezra Klein, which you know, he had no response to, was this fact about Neanderthal DNA. Where it turns out that the only people on earth who don't carry Neanderthal DNA are black people with direct ancestry from Africa. That's not everyone, but that's most black people are just pure human, 
right? And the rest of us have something like 2.7% Neanderthal, right? So when I heard this, actually, I, know. yeah, yeah, that it, explains it might, might explain something. But when I discovered this in, it was 2014, actually, I tweeted, attention all racists, you're right, white people are special, we're part Neanderthal, blacks are just human, right? And that was me being like, you know, the sanctimonious virtue signaling lefty on Twitter. But just imagine if the results were different, right? Imagine if only black people were part Neanderthal. That could be the way it, the dice rolled, right? It seems to me, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that fact would be radioactive. And the scientist who stumbled on it, had he publicized it or she publicized it, would have had their careers destroyed. That's not a situation we can be in because we are going to be inundated with facts that are as awkward as that or worse, right? And there's nothing at stake as long as we have the right political goals. Well, right. right. But I think there is a, you know, there is a temperature. There's a, there's a boiling point. There are words that are off limits for a reason. And we, as a white society, we don't get to decide which words we're allowed to use. So there are trigger words, you know, yeah. there's a lot of trigger things. So, and we have to be mindful of that, especially coming when we don't have that experience, when we don't have that background, we have to say, okay, what are the guidelines to have these kinds of conversations as you're talking about that can be honest, that can be poignant, and that can move the needle forward and wake people up a little bit more, you know? So I think, but I think it's about getting direction from those groups and how they want to be, how they want to be talked about and what words we're allowed to be using as, as, you know, being people that aren't part of that group. But the direction that's coming from some of the most animated voices in all of these groups, now it's not just African-Americans, it's the trans community, their voices, which are in some cases the loudest, want a complete shutdown around free speech. They want totally straight up ethical academics deplatformed and destroyed. And in any given company, they're crazy HR claims, right? I was just at a dinner with a guy who's a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company I won't name. He's got an HR complaint from a guy who thinks he's a cat, right? He's a furry. And he's complaining that there's no litter box for him to use, right? Well, okay. yeah. That's where we are in the furry community. That's a right? very drastic okay. example. Yeah. Okay. But no, but there are... He's a, he's a cat? Yes. Yes. I didn't know this existed. A but pussy yeah. cat? Yeah. He's a, he's a cat. Yeah. He's a furry. I didn't know uh, that was a thing either. No, so we've just offended the furries. I would say things are getting carried away on yeah. that front. But I mean, catch me in 10 years. I'll probably be like, here are my three cat friends. But so in my view, here's the African-American equivalent, right? So I just heard from a guy who works at another company I won't name, who uh, works with a, a black woman who has just awesome black hair that she does all kinds of stuff with. I mean, she's constantly changing it. Looks fantastic. She considers every compliment on her hair from a white person to be a racist microaggression, mm -hmm. right? And takes offense at it. This is yet more racism that I have to deal with, right? I understand that people don't want people just coming up and touching their hair without permission. I mean, obviously that's onerous. But if you think someone looks gorgeous and one of the reasons why you think she looks gorgeous is her hair is so awesome and you say, oh man, your hair is great, right? And if that's your exposure as a racist, right, in their world, that's mental illness, right? We can't, can't live in that world. And that's getting enshrined as a kind of new norm of leftist thought policing that I think we have to push back against. Now, that's not the same as using the N-word whenever you just mm -hmm. feel like using it. 
and as you see, I don't use it gratuitously, but there are some situations where, again, a person's intentions have to be what matter, right? If in 30 years, we're still having this kind of conversation, we'll have witnessed a pendulum swing politically on the right that we don't want to live with. I mean, I just, I don't see how the left with infighting around this kind of stuff feeds Trump or anything like Trump in the future, because I'm hearing from so many people who are fed up with this, who are actually not racists, right? They're not bigots. They're not sexual harassers, but they just can't stand this feeling of walking on eggshells everywhere all the time. And Trump is the commercial that's playing 24 hours a day. That's abided by none of these rules. Yeah, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be this way. These people are fucking crazy. Come over here where we're just going to make America great again. And you have these demonstrations where you have, like recently in Portland, the police just let these far leftist Antifa goons stop traffic and harass people. They didn't go and arrest them because they didn't like the optics of arresting people on the far left in Portland, apparently. So there was like a breakdown of law and order that was you know, done by leftists and watched by cops who were too PC. And eventually it devolved into, then you know, so, some counter demonstrators showed up and it devolved into a chant between people chanting Black Lives Matter and then people chanting USA, 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 right? Now, my concern is that the chant of USA, USA, USA is going to win in 2020 politically. If the left is chanting Black Lives Matter, mm. that, if that's the center of, of, of moral and political gravity, and the right, you know, and Trump's world is just, listen, we're one country and we're going to make it great, just as a matter of political calculation, we have to get our shit together. There's nobody who you've ever talked to who despises Trump more than I do. I mean, he stands for everything I hate in a person, not just in a president. But we're playing our side of the game very badly. And that's, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a very salient point. On the subject of identity politics, let's talk about white identity politics. Sure. Do you have a lot of far-right listeners? It's hard to imagine I do now because I've made it so painful. Because you them. found out about them. Yeah, and then, yeah. But isn't that an opportunity to kind of paint the picture of why Trump is such a disaster to the people that got him yeah, in office? Yeah, no, I mean, I haven't, you know, there's no way f- for me to get someone to stop listening if they're listening, but I've hammered away on Trump as much as is compatible with my basic sanity. I mean, it, eventually it just becomes boring. And I've done it in a way that, has been calculated to be as nonpartisan as possible. It's rarely a Democrat on my podcast saying bad things about Trump. It's usually a Republican who's a, a never-Trumper. So I can sort of dissect out the political part of it. And I've also said very critical things about Hillary Clinton and her campaign. It really, I mean, insofar as I can understand my own mind, it is a nonpartisan hatred of this guy and his politics. And completely justified one. But it's not that I'm a Democrat just arguing for Democrats. But yeah. But to your point earlier, if you're saying that, to your point earlier, you're saying that, you know, this kind of language and, the, and, and Trump being emboldened to use that language and to pull the far right towards him by use of that language, right. you could also argue that there is a bipartisan repulsion to, towards Trump 
for the use of that language. You know oh, what I mean? And, and that's that's warranted. And that could get us out of this mess. The well, it, amount of people that are so disgusted by the way he speaks. Yeah, but the problem is, well, so there's two things on the table here. One is just the problem of white identity politics and then the problem of the poorly calibrated attacks on Trump as a racist, which are counterproductive because they're not aimed appropriately. So white identity politics is definitely a problem. I mean, white supremacy and neo-Nazi groups, I mean, white militias, I mean, that's just awful. And, you know, the FBI should be watching and we should just figure out how to suppress that as much as possible. I don't think you can suppress it at the level of speech. I think there's a reason why we protect even speech that we despise, because that's really where that really is the boundary condition that defines our freedom of speech. I mean, that's why we can rely on it, or at least have been able to rely on it. You know, I'm a big champion of the First Amendment, and I think it's good that even the most odious people get to talk. Even the hateful and lies and stuff? like. Well, well I think there should be a penalty for right. being a racist asshole, right? And that penalty is everyone treats you like a racist asshole. You should be able to boycott the company of somebody who says something sufficiently noxious, but they should be free to say it, right? So there is this problem, and I think Trump really is a racist. And I've said many times on my podcast that Mark Burnett should release the Apprentice tapes that we all know exist, where he is revealing how he uses the N-word when he thinks he's not mic'd or when he doesn't even care that he is, because I think we would hear something analogous to the Furman tapes for Trump and it would matter. And there are many people who are very cynical now who think it wouldn't matter, right? There are many people who on our side mm -hmm. who'd say, well, listen, everyone knows he's a racist. It wouldn't matter if he said this word 20 times. I think it would matter. I think as we've been discussing here, hearing the word, hearing their intention, and assuming his intention is, you know, not Jonathan Friedland's intention, you know, just to talk about how powerful the word is, but he's just using it because that's what he calls these people. These are them. Mm -hmm. And this is how I talk about them. I think it really would matter. But the problem is, is that the left often finds racism where it doesn't exist, even in Trump, where it's not the only explanation or even the best explanation of his behavior or of what he said. And the left now is acting like any concern about immigration, any concern, any concern short of just like, let's just throw open the borders, right? Just wanting defensible borders, wanting to know who's coming in and out of the country. That is tantamount to racism, right. right? Yeah. If that is your position, you're going to lose in 2020, mm -hmm. right? Because there are many, many millions of people who are not racist, who care about an orderly immigration process, and their concern is not motivated by racism. It's very easy to get to a concern about defensible borders without even thinking about race, right? And there are many others, other examples of this where you can hate some of his decisions and policies and utterances for many reasons, but if the lens you're looking through is always race, you're going to be mistargeting here, and you're going to be making allegations that hit other people. It's going to be a kind of overcorrection, which will alienate millions of people who aren't that committed to Trump, but will vote for him if we promote some social justice warrior lefty who's just banging on about how half the country is racist. We have to not make that mistake. And I, I think we're still capable of making it. Well, this was waking up with Sam Harris. Uh, it seems to be, but uh, in the middle of the yeah, I will enjoy the five minutes I get on your, in your documentary.
Don't underestimate yeah, yeah. yourself, okay. kiddo. <laughs> on the subject of virtue signaling, do you think that me doing a documentary on white privilege is virtue signaling? Well, you'll definitely be accused of it. Yeah. I mean, this is another one of these charges which is kind of unfalsifiable. If every public-facing modeling of virtue is interpreted as this ulterior and opportunistic and selfish desire to seem virtuous rather than an actual virtue, mm -hmm. you can always interpret it that way. It's like that no one will escape hanging by that method. And yeah, I just think it's, so many of these memes are toxic. Virtue signaling, you know, it's a real thing. We can talk about it, but out in social media, the people who use the phrase virtue signaling for the most part are just assholes, right? They're just like, they're not, right. you know, they're, they, but they're assholes who are tired of the status quo. They're tired of what we've been talking about. They're tired of the fact that everyone is so afraid to be perceived as part of this problem of intolerance, of bigotry, of sexism, that they're just covering their bases wherever they can. You know, my tweet that I mentioned about the Neanderthal DNA, there's a classic virtue signaling by that method. But I, the truth is, I just wanted to react to the finding and I wanted to tell the white supremacists to go fuck themselves. And it was a great opportunity, but it was easily susceptible mm -hmm, to, right. to me just covering my ass. It's also, you can argue what the impetus and the outcome are. You know, those are two different things. Sometimes it's how somebody, you know, some people don't have the right motivation or the right impetus to do something, yet what the outcome is ends up being a good thing. You right. know, if they're doing it for themselves or they're doing it to virtue signal or as yeah. like a, you know, I'm cool, I'm down with this, you know, I'm on your team. If the outcome is great, I find that to be paramount to then, to, to then why you did anything in the first place, usually. I mean, in many instances. Anyway. Well, you can actually also just become a better person by acting better. Yeah. You can sort of fake it until you make that's it. That's something yeah. else. That's, that's acting sig signaling. Great. Thank well, you so much. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, was awesome. Great.